1: Lauren Lee Chen, and the Twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. The Houston Rockets and Los Angeles Lakers presently tied at a game apiece are just beginning what figures to be a long and competitive series. And we're back on the NBA Beat to dive into the intriguing matchup. I'm Aaron Fishman. Thanks for tuning in. Ahead of Game 3, today's guest, reporter Salman Ali, graciously took the time to share his analysis of the Rockets, the team he covers for the Red Nation Hoops podcast, ESPN 97.5 FM, and his very own Substack newsletter entitled State of the Rockets. Salman, who's also a general NBA reporter for Clutch Points, still has the Rockets edging the number one seeded Lakers in a seven-game battle of opposing styles, which he's dubbed Big Ball versus Micro Ball. In our conversation, he'll explain why he believes the Lakers are vulnerable to the upset and what makes the Rockets so difficult to beat. But first, we begin with why Houston may have a problem if Russell Westbrook attempts seven threes or commits seven turnovers again, both of which he did in the Game 2 loss. Without further ado, let's get to the in-depth and wide-ranging discussion. Salman, it's really good to have you on. I realize you're not in Orlando right now, but I know you're extremely busy with games every other day and media availability when they're not playing. Thanks a lot for joining
0: me. Yeah, for sure. I'm happy to be here, man.
1: I think Russell Westbrook is a, a natural starting point. He's kind of a lightning rod. We've seen it just through the first two games. He possesses boundless energy, as you well know but appears out of control at times, or at least not harnessing that energy for optimal use. And he admitted as much after the game two loss saying right now, I'm just running around. I've got to look at film and figure out how to be effective in your mind. How is he most effective? How, what what can they do to, to harness that energy?
0: So he attempted like four threes in game two and that cannot happen. So he's shooting those threes because the Lakers are trapping James Harden, and, and the Rockets haven't seen a trap since the regular season. What they normally do in that situation is they give it to Russ off of the catch, and he's attacking the basket and finding shooters. And for some reason, he feels the need to shoot, and he's just not effective there. I mean, we all know what Russ's game is. I mean, if, any, if everybody listening to this podcast probably watched the NBA for the past 10 years, I mean, his game is pretty simple. Attack the basket, find shooters, try to get to the cup draw fouls it's it's not a complicated uh scouting report for russ but for some reason he has the tendency to stray away from that and he can't i mean he just can't and he he had had like seven turnovers last night that's that's just him i think this is my theory he just came back from a quad injury he hasn't played basketball in a while Mm -hmm. i think that's him getting his handle correctly i went back and i watched those turnovers on film and it's not him like throwing a bad pass, like a chaotic out of control pass. Like that's, that's the normal Russ turnover. He only had two of those.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: and he had, he had to travel. So those those are like th- three normal turnovers. The four other turnovers were just him, like literally losing the basketball while he was drilling. So I, I think that's just a, a case of him not having his rhythm under him.
1: That's a really interesting observation. You tweeted also last game during the game two loss, that the Lakers are cheating off of him to double Harden and he hasn't done anything to make them pay for it. But going along with the point that you just made, if his handle is on point and he's comfortable there, it's easier for him to attack the basket smoothly, not turn the ball over, maybe even get to the line. He hasn't really been drawing that many fouls, whereas it seems like he's settling a lot for threes.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it is just a case of, like, when teams do that, they want Russ to shoot. Like, there's a reason LeBron is standing damn near at the free throw line. is because he does not respect Russell Westbrook as a three-point shooter, nor should he. He is sacking off to help if Russ chooses to attack the basket. And listen, he's still going to collapse the defense, even if he drives, and the defenders are already back there. And... When that happens, there's going to be an open shooter because the Rockets do a really good job at spacing the floor. And even if there's not an open shooter, the defense is going to be two or three steps late. So there's going to be a secondary pass off that Russ pass to find an open shooter. And the the Rockets have been pretty good at that, at like that second, you know, zing, zing pass, right? Like right after Russ Russ attacks the paint, kicks it out to a shooter. That shooter finds another shooter that's actually open. And that's that's a good shot. That's a good offensive possession. But what, what what Russ is doing right now is right off the catch. He's taking the three point jumper, and that's just not him. That's not his game. I mean, we know what Russ's game is. Like again, it's yeah. not it's not very complicated. And he is not Chris Paul. He is not um, Damian Lillard. He is he is Russell Westbrook. We know what Russell Westbrook's game is, and it's not that.
1: I know you agree with this, and I'm not bold in in taking this stance, but my long-standing pet peeve about his game is that he's taken too many threes for his ability from beyond the arc, but he really improved with that, with his decision-making and was more disciplined this season, and um, I'm curious what you think. I assume it has a lot to do with the Rockets' philosophy on efficient shot-taking, and letting the three-point shooters take the threes and um, just attacking the basket. He's also probably the only Rockets player that you want taking mid-range shots. Is it just a little bit of a regression because he's so wide open and, and maybe he has the supreme confidence that he can hit them in key situations, but he'd just be better served dicing up the defense and creating more openings for outside shooters by penetrating?
0: I think when the Lakers started trapping the Rockets yesterday, they were startled. And they hadn't seen that defense in a long time. And I think uh, Russ just forgot how he usually attacks that defense. Or, or at least he, he, he was you know as shell-shocked as the Rockets were because um, he just was not doing what he normally does in that situation. So, and I think what the Rockets did today was watch film, figure out how they normally attack that. And I think they're gonna. I think they're gonna go back to their basics. I don't think they're gonna be as surprised as they were uh, in Game Two. And if you watch the third quarter of that game, the Rockets really started playing their game. And Eric Gordon and Daniel House and even Russ, like all those guys, are playing how they normally would against the trap defense. And I think if you give them time with it, they're always gonna figure it out because they have so many shooters on the floor. Like that, that's the benefit of trading Clint Capella for Robert Covington. You're always gonna have four shooters uh-huh. on the floor, no matter what roster you throw out there. And even if Russ is out there um, on the perimeter forcing that defender to sag off, there's still going to be a way to break the defense. It's going to take a little bit of bit of patience and uh, patience on Russ's part to just let the game come to him, let that secondary pass come to him. And um, it's going to be interesting how they, how they choose to tackle it in game three. I think they'll be better prepared. And I, I think – the turnovers is definitely going to be something to watch with Russ in Game 3, or whether or not he has his handle right under him.
1: Yeah, and you don't need to elaborate on this. If you don't want to, we have a a lot of other topics to cover, but in your mind, are they a better playoff team now with Russell Westbrook in Chris Paul's place, Or, or maybe, or no?
0: Listen, like I-, I talked about this when they made the trade uh, in July. Like Chris Paul is just better than Russell Westbrook. Like it, that's just that's just the way it is. Like I, that trade flummoxed me when they made it. it. It still flummoxes me now. But if you're a Rockets fan, or if you're someone in the Rockets organization, like still talking about this trade, I don't know what the point is. You can't go back in time and reverse that decision. You have rest now. Mm-hmm. There's no. Po- it's a fruitless endeavor. To go back and play, what if? Right, like there is yeah. no what if. Like Russ is on your team; he's going to be on your team for the foreseeable future. You have to figure out how to move on now. And I think Daryl moved on now, right? Like he made the Clint Capella trade because Russ was forcing the floor spacing to be so bad. And I think the front office moved on. I don't think everybody's moved on. I I, I still saw Rockets fans during the game, you know, playing the what if game. With Chris Paul, what if Chris Paul was in the situation? Well, listen, Chris Paul is not in the situation. Russ is in the situation, and mm-hmm. the Rock. This idea that the Rockets would be better off without Russell Westbrook, like at this point, like no, like they're like if 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 the if Russell Westbrook, let's just say he goes down in Game Three with some sort of injury, the Rockets aren't winning a championship, right? Like it's tempting to think about this team as James Harden four shooters and defenders, right? And uh-huh. That, that is a very effective team, right? Like, we've seen teams like that be very good for the Rockets. But it, that team has a ceiling, right? And against yeah. this specific Lakers team, you just need you need players that are able to make improbable shots. And Russ is, you know, d- despite what, you, what anybody may think of him, right? Like, he is still that kind of player. He makes improbable shots, shots that other average role players aren't able to make. That's what you call an all-star. We know in the history of this league, you need at least two All-Stars to win an NBA championship. So this idea that the Rockets would be better off with Russ, let's just say in a tough stretch, staying on the bench. Well, yeah, maybe for that game. But what's the plan moving forward, right? Like he's going to have to play eventually. He's going to have to play out of this rut. So I don't think it's a smart long-term strategy to say, you know what, Russ is struggling tonight. Let's just bench him. He's not a role player. You can't do that with him. Uh, You have to let him play, play his way out of it, and you have to hope he does because, again, without Russ, the Rockets, point blank, are not winning a championship. They're not winning the series without Russ.
1: I think the role players are going to be critical, so I'm going to list three, maybe four for you, and I'd love to hear your take on which one will be the biggest X factor for the Rockets the remainder of the series, or at least has the potential to be. So. Maybe Austin Rivers, I, I doubt you'll say him because he, he didn't really play that much in game two, and he's not as big against this Lakers team. The other three, Daniel House, Eric Gordon, and Jeff Green, do any of those stand out to you?
0: Eric Gordon is a huge X factor for the Rockets, not only in this series, but in the playoffs because his three-point shooting and his his drives to the basket unlocks so much for them. And I mean, the Rockets aren't playing this style of basketball unless they have Eric Gordon on the perimeter. Just point blank, that 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 he he makes a lot of this possible for them. And as a tertiary ball handler, he's just so good for them as a driver, as a as a catch and shoot three point shooter, as a pull up three point shooter. And when he's hitting his shots at a thirty five to forty percent clip, somewhere in that area. And he over his past three games, he's at, he's shooting. Uh, forty-eight percent from three-point range. Like it, he doesn't need to shoot that hot, but like if he's shooting like again, like thirty-seven percent from three, the Rockets are in a really solid spot offensively. And he just again against the Lakers again. Like the reason I believe, I personally believe this is a bad matchup for the Lakers is because the Rockets and their floor spacing and the way they play just force so many mismatches for the Lakers. And if if they're hitting their shots. There's not really a defense the Lakers can utilize that will stop them. Like there's there's not something that will prevent Houston from scoring on the Lakers because they have so much floor spacing. And, and any counter you try, like the theoretical counters you can come up with, pretty much end up leaving at least one Houston shooter open. And mm-hmm. Eric Gordon, if he's left open, I mean that that's you don't want that. And I think. I think Houston talks about his importance to the team all the time, but I mean, it's not, it's not without reason. He is super duper important to what the Rockets want to do.
1: So Gordon battled injury this year that limited him to 36 games. And I think a lot of people would be surprised to learn that he shot below 32% from behind the arc. Are you worried at all about his shot or not really?
0: It's been odd this year, right? Like, because he's a thirty-seven percent three-point shooter, and he's As you said, he's battled the injuries, and you know, for for a long time, there was a question of whether or not Eric Gordon just wasn't going to get a shot back, right? Like, it it, was it was it just gone? What was that just a thing of history? Was Eric Gordon just at this point in his career just a strictly slasher? And if that was the case, like the Rockets were screwed, right? Like that they just they had no chance at. Uh, winning this winning this title and I think what you're looking at right now is probably closer to what Eric Gordon is than what he was during the regular season because he I don't know what was going on with him I'm, I'm guessing it was just the constant strain of injuries and just coming back and not finding your rhythm and then getting it getting hurt again when you finally find a rhythm like it was like a constant back and forth with that and I would just draw on the larger sample size for his career. He is a 37 percent three point shooter. I think he's probably closer to that than what he was during the regular
1: season. Mm-hmm. Would you like to say anything briefly about Daniel House?
0: Yeah, I mean he's just a really good player, and, and and he's a guy the Rockets were able to find off the scrap heap and play. I mean, develop in their G League and. Uh, formulated to a good player, like this guy is a legitimate two-way player, and the amount of confidence he has during the games. So I'm not sure if you saw it, but like he just does a lot of talking for a guy who's like 25 <laughs> years old on a veteran team, and he and he takes a lot of bold, confident shots, and he has a swagger offensively that you wouldn't expect someone like him to to have. But he he really it's, he's very uh, Chandler Parsonsy. If you guys remember the mid 2000 Rockets, right? Chandler Parsons kind of played that role for the Rockets in terms of the irrational shot taker. And he is very much that for the Rockets offensively. Um, Not as good of a passer as Parsons was, but very much the kind of shot taker he was. And he's a good ball handler for a wing player. And as a defender, he is growing. He He has his moments of inconsistency defensively, but in the playoff, he's been very good. Uh, he's handling tougher assignments off of switches really well. Like like the Rockets obviously switch everything defensively, and he's had moments on LeBron James, and he's done fine. He's done everything you could ask of a young player like him. And I'm not sure if I should even call him young at this point. He's like 20, he's 25 years old. Like that, that's like a that's like a solidly average age for an NBA player. But yeah, he he's been Houston's pet project over the years. He's from Houston. Uh, Coach John Lewis has known him since he was a teenager and it's been interesting to see him grow and develop into the kind of player he's been for the Rockets.
1: Yeah. And he has a really good contract too less than 4 million a year. And he's under contract for two more years too.
0: And he had an interesting quote today. Uh, He said, yeah, I've been slept on heavily with a pillow and a blanket. So, so this guy can talk too, which, which is great for someone like me.
1: Sounds like a rap lyric. (laughs) Right. Um, so the size-speed dynamic, I think, is the central thing that people are re- were really talking about coming into the series, and I think it's definitely played a role through the first two games. So um, after the Lakers lost Game 1, LeBron James was quoted as saying, we got a feel for their speed, and we should be fully aware of that going into Game 2. And it really seemed like they were. Rondo, I thought, was phenomenal in Game 2, and just brought energy that it didn't seem like he brought as much in game one or at least it didn't make as much of an impact but how do you assess the size speed dynamic and which team will have to adjust more to its style of play or will neither team adjust and it's just going to be a matter of which team imposes its will better
0: yeah if the Lakers continue to play two bigs against the Rockets two two traditional bigs I don't like this matchup for them I, and, and listen, I, I've been someone who's been skeptical of this Lakers roster pretty much since the offseason. I, w- I was obviously super excited for them when they traded for Anthony Davis. But then they then they signed Ray John Rondo, then they signed JaVale McGee, then they signed Dwight Howard. And then midseason, they, they go and sign Deion Waiters. And I'm just like, really? This is the roster you call put together uh, around Anthony Davis and LeBron James? And listen, to their credit, it's worked really well throughout the record season, right? Like they've been... An awesome defense in the regular season and a good, a good enough offense, and they were on their way to winning sixty plus games before the shutdown. And I just, I still in the back of my 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 head, I cannot shake this feeling that against a team like the Clippers and the, and the Rockets, like those two teams in particular, they they have the ability to knock this Lakers team off just because of how bad of a, a matchup they can be on the perimeter for them. Like they they have just a limited amount of capable wing defenders like you're talking basically KCP, Danny Green and Alex Caruso, right? And mm. Dan- Danny Green's a solid defender, right? We know this, but he's lost step since he was with the Spurs. Alex Caruso is really good, but he's not he's not good enough to defend James Harden good. KCP is inconsistent. Like the, these are shaky defenders for the for the Lakers to be throwing up against uh James Harden, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, right? Like, and I think against the Rockets, there are just so many players the Lakers cannot play in this matchup. Like, they just cannot play JaVale McGee. They cannot play uh, Deion Waiters. They cannot play um, Ray Rondo. Like, they're, they're, they're just players you can't play in this matchup. Dwight
1: Howard probably, too.
0: Yeah, but here's the thing. Their rotation's going to be too short, so they're, they're going to have to play some of these players. And I think... That that's what that's why this team presents so many mismatches for the Lakers. Like they just they just have a plethora of players that cannot play in the series, but they're going to have to play in this series. And I, and listen, like Ray John Rondo had a good game too. Uh, we saw how he played in Game One, uh, and there's going to be games like the Lakers are just good enough to force this to be a long series. And I think like my pick has always been from the start, Rockets and seven. So I don't expect this to be like an easy series for the Rockets. I, I like, Out of all the series the Rockets have played so far, this is definitely the hardest. And I think I think it's going to be fun. Like this, this is basically basketball philosophy 101, right? Like this is the ultimate first take series. Everyone's going to have a strong opinion about this, right? This is big ball versus micro ball. This is perimeter-based players versus um, more bigger players. More dynamic, attacking the rim kind of players, and, and I think I think that's that's interesting. It's just it's just interesting from a basketball perspective to see these two teams face off in the second round.
1: Yeah, I like you have legitimate concerns about the Lakers' depth and just how they constructed that team. And I also agree that it's going to be a long, competitive series. I'm curious about the other side of the coin because you kind of talked about where the Lakers are vulnerable. But many have talked about, especially in light of trading away Clint Capella now, seven months ago. That was back in February. And they acquired Robert Covington in that big four team deal. They kind of went, they did go all in on this small ball approach. Are you at all worried about combating the Lakers' size, particularly Anthony Davis? I know PJ Tucker has done a really admirable job. Davis and the Rockets are playing good team defense but talk a little bit about that side of the ball
0: well listen I'm not worried because I'm not a Rockets fan right like I have no stake in the series but as far as for the Rockets uh sure I mean yeah offensive rebounding can kill them right like we've seen games in the regular season where offensive rebound has been their death now and if the Lakers do a good job at attacking the class for sure they can find an advantage there but how much of an advantage can you find, right? How much of an advantage can you find versus the Rockets versus what advantage the Rockets can find on the Lakers, right? And like, if you look at the series rebounding totals, the Lakers only have, they're only plus six in rebounding, right? That's Mm -hmm. not good, right? For a team that supposedly is supposed to destroy the Rockets on the offensive glass, even last night, they weren't winning because they were destroying the boards. They're winning because they were getting out in transition and the Rockets were turning the ball over. Right. And yeah. if, if the Rockets are, you know, careful with those things, right, which are big F's because this, this Lakers team is very good in transition. Uh, if, if the Rockets are careful with those things and they keep a lot of it under control, I don't think the rebounding should be too much of an issue for them, particularly because P.J. Tucker in general is just an underrated rebounder. He had 11 boards last night in 34 minutes. In the playoffs, P.J. Tucker shows up to rebound the basketball I've seen it. I've seen it against the Warriors. I've seen it against the Jazz. I've seen it against the Thunder in big playoff games. PJ Tucker shows up to rebound the basketball, and I don't think it's going to be that much of a mismatch for them. Like, like there was a possession where PJ Tucker got a rebound over like four Lakers defenders around him, right? Like, and it was an offensive rebound. You got the putback. Like that's just that's ridiculous. But that that that's PJ Tucker.
1: He makes it look easy, and he's also considered by many to be very important on defense. Do you share that view?
0: Of course, right? Like that's that's um, that goes without question. He is both their best Anthony Davis defender and both uh, their LeBron James defender, right? And
1: is that uh, bad that it's the same person? Or I mean, it, it's important how how key he is, but uh, do the Rockets need someone else, or are they? Um, it can be tricky combating right? that.
0: It can be tricky, but I, I would say they have a, a pretty good amount of perimeter defenders and they're they're throwing Eric Gordon on, on LeBron right now, which is definitely something unique and something surprising when Mike D'Antoni first said that. Um, but it's been okay and the Rockets switch everything and and, and it seems like LeBron is uh, going to want to run more pick and roll eventually in the series. And if he asks for an Anthony Davis pick, guess who gets switched on to him, right? Like that's gonna be P.J. Tucker and I think it, it can be problematic that P.J. Tucker is having to defend both guys but I think against Anthony Davis he's done a good job and against LeBron like I think you look at guys like Daniel House, Eric Gordon, Robert Covington they have more than enough guys to do there listen no one's going to stop LeBron right like LeBron is LeBron but in terms of just keeping him under control, make sure he doesn't have like a 40 point piece on the Rockets. Like they -hmm. have, they have good enough defenders to keep, to at least keep him under that mark.
1: The Rockets ranked 16th in defensive efficiency during the regular season before the bubble. So just middle of the pack, but it's just kind of a small sample size, but I think important to note that they ranked seventh of 22 in the eight regular season games in Orlando. And um, they've, now are third in defensive efficiency in um, the playoffs, but they were first uh, before game two. Um, but anyway, what are you seeing from their defense that's enabled them to improve as a unit?
0: Yeah, this is beyond frustrating for someone like me who has to like, deeply analyze them during the regular season and then uh, make predictions off that sample size for the postseason. If you go back to last year, they did this again. Like they, they, were 17th in defense in the regular season last year, and then they were seventh. No, they were sixth in the playoffs last year. So they did essentially the same thing this year. I don't know what it is. I asked Mike D'Antoni about this yesterday, and what he said was they seem to try harder and they seem to pay a greater attention to detail once they get to the playoffs. And I guess that's the case with veteran teams like the Rockets. Like they just don't seem to care during the regular season about playing any defense. And then once it comes to the postseason, guys like P.J. Tucker, guys like James Harden, guys like Robert Compton seem to step up and play at their best defensively. And um, it, it, it does hurt them in the regular season because they do lose seating advantages, right? Like they're playing the Lakers in the second round versus a team like Denver. It's a, both a good and a bad thing, right? It's good that they do eventually show up in the postseason, but it's it does hurt them in the postseason and that they don't get ideal matchups. But again, I'd be interested to see how long this holds up, right? Like how long do they stay in the top five? Because they did play Oklahoma City in the first round, who is not the greatest offensive team. They're they're an awesome clutch offense, but they're not the greatest offensive team. A lot of what your defense is in the postseason is who you play, right? So Mm -hmm. I'm interested to see how – how much that carries over to this round. Although in game 1 they did play pretty well and third quarter of game 2 they were really good defensively. So I do think they're better. Uh how much better is still up in the air, I would say.
1: Okay. This is kind of irrelevant probably because it was a completely different Rockets team, but I find it fascinating how everyone pretty much forgets that two seasons ago in the 2017-18 season, the Rockets were the 7th best defense in the league. Everyone assumes, national broadcasters included, that the Mike D'Antoni, James Harden teams have just always been bad or mediocre on defense. But they were they were elite that year. But anyway, um, related to that, before we move on, do you see a slight improvement in at least his defensive effort, James Harden? The block that saved the series against the Thunder got a lot of attention and it seems like when he wants to try on defense, he's he's not bad.
0: Yeah. Um. So I'm glad you brought up the 2018 season because that was actually the best defense I've seen James Harden play up until this point. Right. Like, I if you if you look if you go back to that season, like that was probably the best basketball James Harden's ever played. 2018 Rockets. Right. Like he was he was ridiculous. Like on both ends of the floor, he was ridiculous, and that was his MVP season defensively, like the reason the Rockets were so good was because everybody bought in that year. And this year in the postseason, everybody's bought in, including him. What I always look for, is James Harden engaged, right, in fourth quarters? Does he have his head in the game? Is, is he trying hard on both ends? And while he may not be always offensively good in these fourth quarters, he is trying very hard defensively. And I think that that's probably what's most important is he doesn't just phase out like he did in game six versus the Spurs or game uh, five against the Warriors in 2015, right? Like he doesn't just like mentally check out. And I think that's important for the Rockets. Like like they get his full effort. And while he may not shoot the ball particularly well, he'll still have the defense to lean back.
1: Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more show. This is Randy Harvey, former sports editor of Houston Chronicle, and you're listening to On the NBA Beat. I'm curious on another note about the hometown guy, Austin Rivers. He's so inconsistent, it seems like. Near the end of the regular season, while in Orlando, he dropped 41 points against the Kings, and then a few games later, he went one for nine for three points in like 30 plus minutes. Um, it's just hard to know sometimes what you're going to get from him. I don't know if he really fits in given the matchup, if he's going to garner that many minutes, but um, how would you assess his chances of of actually getting some legit minutes here down the stretch?
0: Yeah, so Austin Rivers is a luxury for this team, not a necessity, right? Like he is definitely someone who gets lost in the shuffle when every guard is healthy. But when one guard goes down, or if two guards go go down, he steps up. Like if you go back to that forty-one point game, the Rockets did not have a fully healthy guard rotation, and that's when Us Nervous thrives, right? He needs usage, he needs the ball in his hands, and he's not going to get it with Russell Westbrook, James Harden, and Eric Gordon in the backcourt. He's just not. Like it's just they are better ball handlers than him on the team, and so I am sympathetic to that, but I. Uh, I think he's on this team strictly for defense and when someone goes down with an injury he is someone you definitely like to have in the waiting in the wings basically like if Eric Gordon goes down with like an ankle sprain right like it is good to know for the Rockets coaching staff that they have Austin Rivers to lean back on because he is a good enough player to carry you through those kinds of games
1: This has been an absolute pleasure. You're an encyclopedia of Rockets knowledge. I just have one last question before I let you go and get back to work preparing for Game 3. It's about Mike D'Antoni and his future coaching the Rockets. His contract expires after the season ends. The Pacers were cited as one team that's expressed interest. I thought for sure if the Thunder eliminated the Rockets that he was gone. and. I still think that uh, if they have a poor showing the rest of the series, that that it's possible that the Rockets move on from him. What's your opinion on the future of the DeAntoni experience in Houston?
0: How did I know this was going to be your question when you said you had one question left? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Like, yeah, I've been asked this on every podcast that's brought me on, right? Or radio show, whatever, right? Like, this is always a question I get. and what, what I always say is, like, the postseason matters, right? Like, what the Rockets do in the postseason is highly indicative of what they do with their coaching staff. And that's the case with any NBA team wanting to win a championship, right? What they do in the postseason matters. I, I was definitely on the same page with you. If they lost to the Thunder Series, I thought Mike was gone. With James Harden getting that block against Ludo, like I thought that not only saved his reputation, it saved Mike's job, right? Like, that was a huge block for many reasons and i think it definitely does matter what the rockets do from here on out in the postseason it also matters what are you going to get in the open market that's better than mike d'antoni this is always the question i asked with like rockets fans that want to replace mike d'antoni right like okay so so you fire mike d'antoni fine are you going to find a hall of fame caliber coach on the market because that's what mike d'antoni is right like he is a hall of fame caliber coach he when he retires and when he when he chooses to hang it up he is going to be in the Hall of Fame. He just is. Just on influence on the game alone, uh, let alone his, his credibility as an actual good NBA coach, right? And I don't think you can find someone more uniquely situated to coach this specific Rockets team who is going to play microball next year. Don't let that – don't let what the Rockets do in the postseason fool you. They are going to do this again next year. Like they've already made plans for the offseason with microball in mind. They are not going to go out and search for a traditional center. If Daryl Morey is the general manager, when this season ends, they are going to play micro ball again. So this idea that you're going to find a better suited coach to coach a specific style. I question that. And this idea that you're going to find a better coach in general, I'm highly suspicious of that. Sure. You, you might, right? Like there's always a situation where you fire a Dwayne Casey and you find your Nick nurse, right? But those are definitely few and far between when you're talking about a coach as good as Mike D'Antoni. And that's always the question I ask. And I wrote an article about this um, mid-season, or no, mid-pandemic, right? <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote an article about this mid-pandemic when it seemed like there, the rumors for Mike D'Antoni uh, from other teams are starting to heat up. And I wrote that, listen, Mike D'Antoni is probably going to be back if the Rockets compete at a high level in the postseason. And Daryl Morey responded to that and said, "Wait, you're not following the media, media narratives, right? Like he was being sarcastic, right? <laughs> and that's kind of that, that's kind of what I always say when, when we talk about Mike and Tony's future in Houston. Like the Rockets haven't made up their mind yet. It's possible that they just weren't able to hammer out a deal last offseason. Like that's possible. Like if you look at Billy Donovan in, in Oklahoma City, like it, is is everyone talking about him as a foregone conclusion to be gone? Because I nope. I don't I don't remember. Yeah, and he's on the final year of his contract, right? Like it's it's possible that not everybody, not every coach on the final year of their deal gets an extension. And if you look at what the Rockets did this off season, like it's it's possible that they just weren't able to hammer out a deal. Like I, I, that that's kind of what I want to say, uh, in in regards to the Mike D'Antoni front. Like like let's just wait, see how this postseason goes out, uh, see how things work out for the Rockets in the offseason. Because I don't think anything's a foregone conclusion in the NBA, especially with this Rockets team moving forward.
1: I think also with regards to the differences and how Donovan and D'Antoni have been talked about, I think a lot of it has to do with expectations too from those two teams respectively. But um, D'Antoni in his four seasons coaching the Rockets has taken them to the second round every year, but never passed that except once when they lost in the conference finals to the Warriors. So I guess the calculation has to be is that a ceiling? And do you blame him? Is there someone that can get them farther? B- or is it just the the West has been so strong, and he puts them in the best position to succeed?
0: Yeah, I mean, here's the problem with that: is they've gotten eliminated by the would-be Western Conference champions every single time. They've lost to the Warriors every single time. Mike D'Antoni's every single year. Mike D'Antoni's been Houston, except for one, which is against the Spurs in Game. Uh, in that six game series. Right. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about a dynasty like team that they just weren't able to get past. And in one of those years, they lost their second best player in game five. Right. And th- that's kind of the problem I have with this stuff. Right. Like it's just, it's like, we don't take the full context into it. Like, right. Like, yes, he, Mike D'Antoni teams have had a ceiling abuse Houston, but is that due to Mike D'Antoni or is that due to other circumstances?
1: And it's a small sample size too. There have only been three postseasons. And, and,
0: and right. And if you can look at what the Rockets did schematically in all those series, like, is there something that you would have preferred Mike D'Antoni did? Is there something like that you feel like damn Mike D'Antoni made a big mistake here? Right. Whereas if you look at a coach like maybe like Budenoser, right? Like with, with the Bucks, like there are specific mistakes you can point to, like Giannis should be playing more minutes. Or uh, the Bucs should be trying X or Y, right? Like, there are specific things you can point to. I'm not sure if you can do that with the Rockets, right? Like, there was one series where against the Spurs, like, you could say, yeah, perhaps Mike D'Antoni should stretch the rotation out a little bit when Nene went down. But, like, that's, like, one minor detail in one series that was two years ago, right? And if you you go back to the Warriors series, like, I mean, I'll just ask you, like, do you feel like watching those series, do you feel like if you were the head coach of that team, you would have done something differently.
1: That's what you have to ask. And it'll be interesting to see what they do. So I have you down for Rockets and seven, right?
0: Yeah, that that is my pick. Uh, it was a tough pick because, like, me- like, listen, like mentally, like I'm always inclined to listen to the numbers, right? And the numbers say the Lakers have been the best team in the Western Conference this entire year.
1: Pre-Orlando bubble, though, I think is important. Sure,
0: right, yeah. And yeah. And I'm mentally inclined to listen to that. But matchups matter too. And I think this is one of those cases where I've never been comfortable with this idea of the Lakers just rolling over this Rockets team or just being able to get past them or the Clippers. Right. my, My whole theory of the case is, if they get past the Rockets, I don't think they're getting past the Clippers. Like, I, 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 I really do think this roster for the Lakers has specific holes. And I think mm-hmm. I think there are smarter teams that will be able to exploit them. And I think the Rockets and the Clippers are two of those smart teams.
1: Okay, thanks again for taking the time, Solomon. For sure, man. Thanks for having me.